0: Please get out your Bibles, if you have one, First Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be in verses 6 through 18. Now, it's, uh, it's easy to eat French fries. You don't even have to look. You don't need two hands. You just grab them and eat them. A Cuban sandwich is different. You know, you want to attend to that. Lobster is a whole different story. Like, you need tools and you need protective gear for lobster and even then, it, it's, it's, you're going to really have to work to get it. Today's text is not french fries, it's lobster. All right, You are going to have to really focus and get some protective gear. So please, uh, you, you're going to have to really track with me. It's going to be a challenging sermon, but like lobster, the work is worth it. I hope. Um, maybe I'm just fig leafing because I feel bad about my sermon. So <laughs> uh, let, let's read... Um, just we're going to start with verses six through seven because it's a, a it's a long text um, And uh, and we don't want to overwhelm ourselves at the beginning. We'll pick up the rest as we go So first corinthians chapter four starting at verses six and seven I have applied all these thi- all these things to myself and apollos for your benefit brothers That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Please pray with me. God, open your word to us now. I pray that I would not preach in my own power, but through the power of your Spirit, that you would give us the understanding we require to get the message and live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys might, may not know the name Alfred P. P. Sloan, but I guarantee you he exerts an influence over your life every single day. Alfred P. Sloan was an electrical engineer who went to work for General Motors in the 20s, and this was when the Ford Motor Company and the Model T had the game on lock. Everybody who wanted a car had a Model T, and the, the Model T is basically like a, a tractor that you could drive on the road, and you know Henry Ford used to say, you could have it in any color, as, color you want as long as it's black. Um, and, and so Arthur Sloan, he had the idea, or Alfred Sloan, I should say, he had the idea, well, we're not going to beat them at, the, at just the, the making a basic car game. So he decided, let's make a car that's non-basic. Let's make it more schnazzy. Let's give it good upholstery. Let's make it in different colors. A little side note, they developed auto paint at the same time they developed nail polish, and they're the same thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> Literally the same thing, but the idea was you could have an orange car, a yellow car, a brown car, whatever. You could have a stripe to it, and you see now, you, this when Chevrolet. He, he's the guy who started Chevrolet, and, and they had a new model Chevrolet every single year. This was unheard of because a car is sort of a durable thing, and his idea was something they called psychological obsolescence. He wanted to make the car consumer think that the car they bought last year, though it functions perfectly well, is out of date. That what you have isn't enough so they can get people to buy more cars. Obviously, Apple has adopted this. If you're two, two generations behind on the iPhone, it might work great. And you're like, surely I'm missing out on something. This thing is embarrassing to carry. It's out of date. What I have is not enough. I need an upgrade. Alfred P. Sloan invented the upgrade. And we're all constantly looking, oh, do I need an upgrade? Do I need to upgrade my shoes? Are these skinny jeans I'm wearing in style still? The answer is no. I looked it up. <laughs> See? And you all, everybody who has a pair is like, oh, I need to upgrade. See how that works? Now, Alfred Sloan didn't give us that impulse that what you have is not enough. He, he tapped it. He exploited it, didn't he? Because, really, you see this impulse all over the New Testament. Do you know where the trouble starts? Whenever Paul is writing a letter... You know, it's like a problem has arisen. The reason is, it's because the, this, this church that he's writing to, and the Corinthians are, are no exception, maybe the best case uh, I- example, it's, they said, the gospel that we have, it's just not enough. There's something missing. We need to upgrade it somehow. We need to, you know, and there's a whole list of things that follow from that first mistake, that first lie that the gospel is not enough. And you try and improve it. You try and improve it with your culture in the case of the the Corinthians. And that leads to, and we're going to follow this pattern throughout the sermon. This is where I'm saying, like, you're going to have to work. First, it's the belief that the gospel's not enough. And we've got to upgrade it with our culture. And that, for the Corinthians and for us, leads to a bad theology of the kingdom resulting in arrogant leadership in a divided church. So did you catch all that? Gospel's not enough. Spruce it up with our culture. Bad theology of the kingdom. Arrogant leadership. Divided church. And this is all over the New Testament. So Paul is, Paul again and again addresses it in the same way. He In verse 7, I don't know if you noticed, he says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not Receive if then you received it. Why do you boast as if you did not receive it now? Chapters 1 through 4 are the first major section. This is the end This is the summary section of Paul's first big argument in 1st Corinthians, and so when you reach the end of a section maybe there's a reference to the beginning Maybe this whole thing comes first circle and when he talks about what we received We're supposed to think back. Oh, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm an ancient person with a great auditory memory. They would remember. And this is what he said. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. He says, I give thanks to my God. This is how he starts the whole thing. To my God always for you, because of what? The grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in what? Every way. You were enriched in him in all speech all knowledge even as the testimony about christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our lord jesus christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our lord jesus christ where does he go back to it's the gospel it's the completeness of the gospel it lacks nothing you've been given the whole thing there's nothing to add the gospel is what we need we have all we need in the gospel, that is the central truth upon which this whole text is based. And if you're with me so far, good, you've got the rest of it. Paul is addressing this impulse that the gospel, we need more than the gospel. We've got to improve this with the central truth. If there's, if there's wrong actions that result from believing the lie that the gospel isn't enough, then there's right actions that come from believing that it is all we need, right? Right? And what are they? They are, and here's, the, here's your outline, to stay within Scripture, to wait for the kingdom, and follow the way of Jesus. To stay within Scripture, wait for the kingdom, and follow the way of Jesus. So, first of all, th- this whole impulse to improve the gospel with your culture, like, th- this, is, this, you can look at every era of church history and see this. I want to show you a picture real quick. And my son's on slides today. Shout out Abe. I know, right? It's pretty cool. Okay, so what is that? That is a 9th century Frankish headstone of a warlord. Who's on that headstone, guys? Who do you think? The Franks who founded France. They, they were a barbarian tribe that became Christians, and it was customary on your headstone to have a picture of Jesus. What's he holding? What is that? Can anybody see? It's a spear. That's right you know why because the Germanic barbarians that destroyed the Western Roman Empire and became Christians they they really had a hard time with this whole thou shalt not kill Prince of Peace thing and they said "Eh, that can't be right and so they you know they had come from a a culture where they literally worshipped swords okay like war and killing was just that was just what you did you're not a man. ...if you're not doing that. And so they said, yeah, gospel, good. Jesus saved kingdom of heaven. Can we make it more violent? For instance, can we give Jesus a spear... ...and make him like Thor, like a warrior God? So you see, gospel's not enough. Spruce it up. You know, we, we're going to fix it with our culture. Well, as ridiculous as that is to our eyes... I, ...I mean, I'm glad it's become ridiculous... ...but white Jesus is now ridiculous to our eyes... But it wasn't for a long time. There were people who were like, yeah, Jesus, can we make him white? Sandy blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, real pale, needs sunscreen. <laughs> is that... Is, how, how ridiculous is our consumer version of Christianity that we have everywhere today? That we take the American dream, which is a huge part of our culture, and we just ship it right in to the gospel. Or I, I mean, a hundred years from now, people are going to look back on how we talk about God as like the mascot of the American military. I'm all for the American military. I'm a big fan. but like, God's not the mascot of the American military. It is us taking our culture and trying to upgrade the gospel with it. I want to be clear about something. The gospel can inhabit any culture. That's part of the beauty of it, is that you know, it can be expressed through. Ancient culture, modern culture, Western culture, uh, African culture, Asian culture, and it all is equally valid and glorifying to God. That's a good thing. We we used the Western cultural artifact of the three-chord pop song this morning. We filled it up with the gospel and gave it to God. That's a beautiful thing. The problem is, is instead of the gospel filling up your culture, your culture fills up the gospel, redefines the gospel, changes it. That is the exact problem that they're dealing with in Corinth. One thing you have to, uh, have to understand about Corinth is they were in some regard Greek. Now, Greek culture was renowned and still is renowned across the world. Just ask the Greeks. Right, the Greek philosophy, their uh, their letters, the the Greek language was spoken all over the ancient world, their architecture, and the rest of it. Right, Greeks thought a lot of their own culture, and guess what? The gospel came from people they referred to as barbarians. The origin of the word barbarian is you don't speak Greek, and what it sounded like to Greeks was barbar barbar. Bar. It literally barbarian is like that's Greeks making fun of us bar, 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 that's how you sound to a Greek, (laughs) right? And the gospel about Jesus came from barbarians, and so if you look, and and our ancient scholar will back me up on this, most of the early heresies of the church were people trying to upgrade the gospel with Greek culture, because they said, well, Greek culture is the best like, surely we can improve this gospel message with just a little sprucing up of Greek culture, some Greek philosophy, some Greek ideas. But Paul, coming from this point of view that, no, what we, we already have what we need in the gospel. The first thing he commends the Corinthians is to stay within the scriptures. Look at verse 6, where he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So this, this, this division, th- this is not coming from the gospel. They're going outside. They're trying to take, they're trying to take Greek philosophy, Greek uh, uh, you know, rhetorical traditions, and trying to upgrade the gospel. It's driving division. You remember... When we looked back at chapter one, told you this would be work. Paul says, You're already enriched in all speech and knowledge. You're not going to upgrade the gospel by, by bringing Plato into it, right? You're not going to upgrade the gospel by, by introducing the, the Greek rhetorical style that they were so in love with. You already have all that you need. Staying within the scripture is more challenging than it sounds. But it's also, like, when we sit and reflect on if we just take the Scripture as the Word of God, think of the things that you can get into. Think of the questions it allows you to answer. The meaning of life. Ethics, like how to live a life you won't regret. What love means. How to know God. The basis of human dignity. This was very interesting. I, I hope this doesn't get too much, but I was listening to an interview with Tom Holland, who's a, a historian of the Roman world. He's not yet a Christian. I believe he might be, coming one. And he said, you know, when we think of what we value in the West, Western human rights tradition of mercy, human dignity, and that it's nobler to suffer than to inflict suffering, he's like, I was looking for that in any Greek philosopher, in any Roman philosopher, and it's simply not there. He says, you know where it comes from? It comes from the gospel of Jesus. This is from a person who is not committed to Christ, right? Like, isn't that astounding? That just by staying within Scripture, we are able to take on, to investigate uh, some of the biggest questions that we have to answer as human beings. Like, Scripture's very, very rich. Now, am I saying that you don't need to know anything but what's in the Bible? Like, all other learning is worthless and and corrupting corrupting the Bible? No. In fact, I I hope the doctor I see reads a lot more than the Bible, or my auto mechanic. (laughs) Like, the Bible doesn't speak a whole lot to how to do science, or medicine, or cook a meal, or or, or a number of things, right? There's there's appropriate venues for human learning, but the question is, Is the gospel speaking into our economic thinking? Is it speaking into how we do medicine and understand what it is to heal someone, right? Or is it the other way around? Is our culture informing the gospel or the gospel informing how we think about our culture? That's what it is to stay within the scripture. Now, track with me here. This central lie that the gospel is not enough, that you've gotta upgrade it with your culture, leads to bad theology, in particular, a bad theology of the kingdom. Because what happens is your culture becomes the kingdom. It it is amazing how often this happens. You know, at at the turn of the 19th to 20th century, they founded a journal. It's still being published. It was called The Christian Century. And what this was was a bunch of you know, enlightened, progressive European and white Americans who, said, who, who looked at the turn of the 20th century as like the coming of the kingdom of God because European nations controlled the world and had enlightened it, that technology and medicine was going to solve all of our problems, that wars and, and sickness and all this stuff was going to be a problem of the past, that now... Now that, you know, white supremacist European and American culture was ascendant, uh, the the kingdom has come. The Christian century has come. Of course, the First World War kind of put an end to all that, as it will. But you hear what the thinking is. You've substituted your culture for the gospel, so when your culture is ascendant, you say, the kingdom has come. We didn't need Jesus. We could do it ourselves. You know, we're we're still making that same mistake. It looks a little different for us. We take the American dream and mistake it for our theology of the kingdom. And I I don't mean to step on, if if you like this sort of teaching, I'm not trying to diss you. I'm just saying it's an example. There's a a best-selling book, that's emblematic of a whole host of teaching. It's called Your Best Life Now. right? Think of that. It's saying you you could live your best life now. You don't have to wait for the kingdom. You don't need Jesus to do it. If you work hard enough in America, you'll have your best life now. The life that you dreamed of. A successful, thriving career. Generational, game-changer wealth the spouse that you want, the family that you want, the reputation that you want. You can have it right now, and guess what? God's going to help you achieve that American dream. Do you hear the similarity when you import your culture? You're like, this is the gospel. What is the, what is the kingdom become? What does the ideal life become? You don't need Jesus for it. You can get it. You can get it now. You don't have to wait. And and, and the, the real this gets painful. Those of you who have been exposed to this particular brand of American dream kingdom theology, if you don't match up to the American dream, if you're not wealthy, if you're not married, if you don't have kids, if you've had struggles and failures, there's like not something just wrong with you, but something wrong with your faith because you know what? If you really walked in a way that pleased God, things would be working out for you. It's the same in Corinth. When we look at verse 8, Paul uses this word already. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, without the apostles, you have become kings. There was a time coming of plenty. There was a co- time coming of Christ's rule. It's known as the kingdom of God. And they are already functioning as if the kingdom of God were there. They're seeking status. They're laying, they're saying, uh, you know, they, they, they are thinking that the kingdom of God has already come. Why? Because their culture was informing their gospel. What uh, many scholars have pointed out is that you already have all you want, you rich, you rule. This was a catchword in the philosophical community. Now, this is where I lose you if I lose you. There was an ancient philosopher named Diogenes. Diogenes. Diogenes the cynic. And um, think of him as like a, uh, he would be like a, like a self-help guru that's into the outdoors today. Live your best life by just being tough enough and you can survive it and you can do whatever. Just will, you know, if you have the will and the grit, you can do it. That's kind of him. And... One of his writings that had caught on in Corinth, he, you know, it was, it was uh, you alone are rich, you alone rule. And so when Paul is saying, oh, you guys are already rich, you guys already rule, he's making fun of them taking up Diogenes. It would be me like, like me saying, oh, all you do is win, 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 no matter what, right? Like, like DJ, DJ Khaled. Anyway. It would be that recognizable of a phrase. You all got it when I said it. Okay. <laughs> but the, the point being is that they don't need to wait for the kingdom. They're already ruling. They're already reigning. Why? Because they had shipped in their culture to the gospel and redefined and had a bad theology of the kingdom. Look at how Paul responds to this in verses 9-13. through 13. He's like, yeah, apostles didn't get the memo that the kingdom had come. Look what he says. He says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. He's giving a, he's you know, being a spectacle sentenced to death. The Romans really liked to kill people for entertainment. So either a gladiator or a crucified person, he's saying, we're like gladiators. That's our status. Y'all rule and reign. We're, we're, we're bottom of the barrel. He says, um, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed, buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. He's contrasting hey, the guys who got the gospel from, us, the apostles, yeah, we're not living like the kingdoms here. His, His example is saying, wait for the kingdom. And this connects back, remember I told you to be work, it connects back to what he says in chapter one, where he reminds them of what they've received. What is it? In verse seven, So, that you're not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. So, instead of living as if the kingdom is already, he's correcting their bad theology of the kingdom by saying, wait for the kingdom. Not best life now, best life then. Don't have the expectation that everything works the way your philosophers say it's going to be. That goes for us too. We need a big correction. Uh, no matter how, how much you think you've rejected American dream theology or prosperity teaching, it's in me, it's in you. When something is going poorly, when I'm struggling with something, a, a, a sickness, a tragedy, God, man, maybe God's forgotten about me. Maybe God did something. Right? We all go there, don't we? It's because we have this idea that in this country... <laughs> If you work hard enough, God's going to bless you. And things will go right. And you shouldn't have to suffer and you shouldn't have to be poor or anything else. That's a lie. That is a distortion of our theology of the kingdom. That's bad kingdom theology. We need to wait for the kingdom. Now, I need you to pay attention again. When we start with that lie, The gospel's not enough. We've got to upgrade it with our culture. It kicks out bad theology of the kingdom, and that directly informs who you empower in leadership because the person that you empower in leadership is the one who is walking in that kingdom life as you understand it, right? The the, the values of a culture are the pe- the people who embody those values? That's who gets empowered. You know, in the the Soviet Union, you had a bunch of really parent, you had a very paranoid, terrified, you know, terrorizing culture. And who got promoted? Stalin, Baria, guys who were really good at paranoia and terror. Funny how that happens. If if you have imported American dream theology into your gospel, that's your vision of the kingdom is to be thriving in America. Well, guess what? Guess who's going to get empowered in leadership? It's the people who most embody the American dream. The successful entrepreneur. You know, how many times, uh, like, I don't know if you, the, those of you guys who have been around church, it's like, this guy started his own business. Surely he could be an elder. <laughs> right? Nothing wrong with starting your own business. Doesn't disqualify you, but that's not a qualification. We, we lay hands on the alpha types, the ones who push to get their agenda. You know what you end up doing? You end up empowering the arrogant. You know, like somebody's single in late in life. Oh, there's something wrong with that person. They're single. That's not the American dream. Tell me when I lie. That's what they had done in, in Corinth as well. And, and Paul refers to this arrogant leadership that was driving the division in the church. You're going to have to do a little homework with me right now. Look first at verse 6. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be what? Puffed up in favor of one against another. Then again, in verse 18, we're going all the way down to verse 18. He says, Some are arrogant. As though I were not coming to you, and I don't even have this, just listen, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. The word for arrogant and the word for puffed up, it gets translated two different ways. It's the same word. He's referring to these arrogant leaders who, because they had this bad kingdom theology, were leading in a high-handed, status-seeking, king-of-the-mountain kind of way that was destroying the church, that was producing an unhealthy church. They had empowered the arrogant. Paul seeks to correct this by example. Look what Paul says in verses 14 through 17. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, But to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. So Paul talks about the life he lives, this life of low status, of low cash at many times, of suffering, of not walking the way that they think, that, that, you know, ruling and reigning. Instead, going the way of Jesus. And when he says that you would imitate me, he says elsewhere, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And he even sends them Timothy as a lived example. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to walk the way of Jesus. He's correcting by example. We don't need more than the gospel. We we already have what we need in the gospel and that means that we, we need to walk in the way of Jesus. We aren't going to upgrade the life of Jesus. That our lives should not look like you know, the rags to riches success story. If that happens for you, great. I hope you tithe. <laughs> but our lives should mimic those of Paul's as he mimics Jesus. He's, he's, not, he's not seeking status. What's he doing? Like, think, think about this, guys. What does this mean for how you em- who you empower in leadership? Who embodies the kingdom? That we're waiting for the kingdom. That this world is not as it should be that, that we are waiting for Christ to come that, we, that, that, that in this world it is broken like who embodies that J- Jesus does who, who's the one flourishing human being in world history the one who truly lived an unfallen life it's Jesus isn't it how does Jesus stack up to the American dream how does carpentry business do not worthy of note is it I don't think he expanded. (laughs) He never got married. He never had children. He didn't make any money. He was crucified and an enemy of the state. He was not alpha. He refers to himself as meek and humble of heart. Now, how does it look to say, oh, this person started a car dealership. They should be an elder. They should lead. That looks ridiculous, doesn't it? Do you see why empowering the arrogant leads to division? While those who walk the way of Jesus brings unity, brings peace, brings maturity, to follow those people, to follow Paul instead of the arrogant, puffed-up leadership that they had, and that goes for us as well. I want to say that we... Our nominees for our elders, deacons, and deaconesses walk the way of Jesus. We don't have a single arrogant person among them. We are off to a good start, okay? But that doesn't mean that we can't fall for this same exact mistake. We must remember that the gospel is all we need, we need to stay within the scripture wait for the kingdom, and walk the way of Jesus. Please pray with me. God, thank you for your word that you speak into our lives, that you speak into our church, that you shine a light on places that might be painful for them to shine a light on. But, we thank you that you do. Would you use your word to transform us? That what is beautiful in our eyes is not the American dream, but the kingdom of Christ. Let us see the gospel as all that we need. In Jesus' name.